Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about Inside Lewin Davis, the 2013 film written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen. I am here with the Lessons from Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Shout. Oh, sorry. Hi. And Alex Cayeros. <laughs> Hello. Before we jump in, quick message to Beyond the Screenplay patrons. Voting is open for our May patron exclusive episode. The choices are Pirates of the Caribbean, The Incredibles, Psycho, Being John Malkovich, and The Royal Tenenbaums. All of the above. Head to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon to cast your vote for what movie you want to hear us talk about. But for now, Inside Lewin Davis. So this is another one of these experiment things that we're doing where someone from the team chooses a movie uh, to have everybody else watch and then discuss. Alex, you suggested Inside Lewin Davis. Why did you want us to talk about Inside Lewin Davis? So when we were trying this out where we were all going to choose a film to make the other people watch, I went through my Blu-ray collection and I was looking at films that I really love because I don't usually buy Blu-rays unless I want to watch them multiple times or it's a film I want to revisit as a filmmaker. And I actually only own two Coen Brothers movies. One of them is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And the other one is Inside Lewin Davis. So you might see kind of a theme there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> a T-Bone Burnett theme. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, I I love this movie. When it came out, I saw it in theaters. I might have seen it alone, actually. Um, you and... mean in the whole theater? You were the only person in it? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Because uh, apparently nobody saw this movie. It was one of those really wonderful theater experiences where I just sank into this movie. Uh, I loved the music. I loved the period. I loved Oscar Isaac most of all. Uh, I mean, sure. And I just, I, it was just, it was one of those like just lovely cinematic experiences where I got to just be in this world for a while, and I was genuinely surprised by the like soulfulness that came through the movie like Mm -hmm. Oscar Isaac's performance I think is one of my favorite performances ever like I just Mm -hmm. love him as this character in this movie such an interesting character you know so frustrating at times but also so relatable at other times and Mm -hmm. uh like I'm I'm with him on this you know this Coen Brothers journey where you know (laughs) when you're going to Coen Brothers journey it's gonna (laughs) it's it's not gonna really be satisfying but it's gonna be kind of like how life is sometimes a lot of false starts, a lot of shattered dreams, uh, weird people. And I think John Goodman, larger than life. John Goodman <laughs> has yeah. made an appearance. Uh, but I think what I really resonated with is that it's, it's a story of an artist who doesn't make it. And I think mm-hmm. so many Hollywood movies about artists, like usually have some element of like, they are discovered you know, the La La Land ending, you know, where it's like mm-hmm. they try, they try, they try. And then they get it. They they become the movie star. They or they become the movie star and have a downfall. But I right. like this. I like the story of an artist who just never even gets to the part where they can have a downfall. Like most artists stay where Lewin Davis stays, which is he actually is a beautiful musician, a beautiful singer mm-hmm. uh, and has a real talent and a real kind of like expressiveness when he's performing. Uh, he feels like this is his authenticity and what he's meant to do. You know, he's stubborn. He wants to do it his way. And there's not really any place for him to make a living in this world uh, yeah. with those principles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I just think I haven't seen a whole lot of films just do a deep character study of that person. And I feel like that person sometimes. So I think I mm-hmm. resonated with that. And uh, 
so yeah, all those reasons are why I chose this movie for our talk today. Yeah, I feel like I've heard you, I've been hearing you talk about this movie since you saw it, because I remember you saw it and had all these really great things to say, and you were like, this Oscar Isaac guy, he's really good, and I was like, Oscar who? Like, I don't know, and then later, oh, Poe, you mean Poe? Um, <laughs> so it was great to to go back and see um, where you discovered Oscar Isaac and that he's in the movie with Kylo Ren also. Yes. Wild. Surprises. Yep. <laughs> the whole cast is just a lot of surprises in, in every scene. Justin Timberlake. Right. Yeah. Random Justin Timberlake is in there. Um, but so, yeah, it, it was really interesting to go back and kind of discover all those. For me, anyway, having heard you say all those things before, watch it and be like, oh, OK, I get it. This is this is where he's been coming from. But for, yeah, Trisha and Brian, I know you guys are Coen Brothers fans and have seen all their movies. Have you guys seen this one? So I had seen this one. Um, I, I am not quite. I, I like. I don't have quite every single Coen Brothers movie that I think I've seen. I think I've missed like one or maybe two. But I did catch this when it came out, of course, uh, because I, I truly do think that the Coens are maybe my favorite filmmakers ever. There's just something about the way that they approach writing, and of course, they're just extremely ta- like. There are a lot of filmmakers where I'm like, this is a great filmmaker. I'm not sure this person is a genius, but I kind of think that every time I see a Coen Brothers movie, I'm just like, the layers are just layers upon layers um, of just like really smart references and writing. But it is true that this one is kind of anomalous in their filmography because it's not really either one of their comedies or one of their like dark, violent dramas, right? So it's not Fargo or... No Country for Old Men. It's also not really something like, what's that one of theirs that I really like? Intolerable Cruelty or, or yeah, mm, or Burn After mm-hmm. Reading. Some of their weird like slapsticky kind of, um, or like Hudsucker Proxy. Like it's not one of those. And so it just kind of is this quiet, um, meditative, like just peace on failure. And as, as you were saying, Alex, and it's, it doesn't, for me, I actually liked it a lot more rewatching it just now. So I'm I'm really happy that you chose it. Um, but I do get why it doesn't jump out at people most of the time if you're talking about like what are the best Coen Brothers movies ever. I don't think other than you, <laughs> Alex, <laughs> anybody would g- immediately go inside Lewin Davis. But I-, I could be wrong about that. You know, it's interesting because I think I'm not somebody who like default loves coen brothers movies mm. and so i think mm-hmm. it's in in some ways the ways that this is not a coen brothers movie maybe that's what it is. are the, the reasons i like it maybe you know i don't know and a lot of people who don't like coen brothers movies do like oh brother where art thou and i i we need to circle back to that like the comparisons between the two and how related yes. they are because i i think that you're onto something there but yeah, yeah brian what about you uh, yeah, I've seen every Coen Brothers movie. Um, and oh, I'm... all right. Okay. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> he wins. He wins. You know, the one I um, missed is The Lady Killers. That's the one mm, I have not seen. Yeah, you didn't miss so. much. Great. <laughs> but uh, no, I I, uh, I like Inside Lewin Davis. I think it, uh, talking about which kind of movie it's like of theirs, I think it actually kind of follows a, a serious man, mm, uh, which right. was- Definitely. You have a serious man, True Grit, and Inside Lewin Davis, or yeah. these like almost like trilogy of like we're taking a break from Burn After Reading and Hail Caesar type Coen Brothers, which is on either end of that of those three movies. And uh, and yeah, I like 
you, I'll talk about both those, Lewin Davis and The Serious Man. I like both those movies. I like, as you were saying, Trisha, that they are sort of quieter and more dramatic and stuff. But for that reason, they're like not high, high on my list of Coen Brothers movies, but I, I like them and I like this movie. Um, and rewatching it now for this was nice because I, I already mm-hmm. knew what the movie was. I'd already had my sort of first experience with it. So I could kind of focus on a little more and start picking apart metaphor and things, which is one of the most fun exactly. things to do with the, with the Coen Brothers movie. Um, and, uh, and I have issues in general with how the Coen brothers choose to structure their stories, which we can get into a little later, mm. but um, some of which comes up in Lewin Davis, but it, uh, but I still, I still really enjoy the movie. Yeah. So, I mean, so there's, I think a lot of interesting things to talk about here. Cause I, I, I the idea that you raised this not being a Coen brothers movie, quote unquote, I think I'm kind of also in a similar camp as Alex, which is probably a surprise to no one. But, but... <laughs> you didn't even give me a chance to make my fake shocked expression. <laughs> Where, yeah, for me watching it, I was like, this this doesn't feel like a Coen Brothers movie, like the the surface level things that I think are sometimes Mm. kind of more, you know, the being presented to you of, look, you were watching a Coen Brothers thing. I think those were more (laughs) muted here. And so what was left was sort of this more contemplative, you know, a, a story of change and growth but as you were saying alex it's a you know not a lot happens the growth is minuscule it's not i actually think it's the story of very pointed no growth it's literally a loop it is it is actually a loop which we need to get into all right let's do it wait wait wait. what does michael have more thoughts though before we get into like the loopy aspects (laughs) well i so i can finish my thought and then we can see if it's invalidated but i i feel like to me, because I, I, so I finished it. Let's talk about the loop. I finished it and I was totally on board with the movie. And then at the end, it was like, wait, wait, what? This is the, wait, what? And so then I had <laughs> to go back and I rewatched the beginning several times and I rewatched the end several times. And so if you haven't seen it or, you know, whatever, it's the ending is the beginning, but with a very slight change where he stops the cat from running out mm-hmm. of, of the door. Right. But otherwise, it's it's the same. I think what we're seeing at the beginning of the movie is the same the bar it's... night as the end of the movie. But we see more of it at the end of the movie. We I see think that's it, what it is. Too. We see him right. play the second song, which is the song that he played with his now deceased uh, partner uh, in the end, which we which we, right. we do not get to see in the beginning. Uh, but we but we see the end of his we see the end of his beginning song in the final scene. Like we see him wrap that song up and he's like, okay, one more. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think the issue, Michael, is that you are um, linking in your brain the scene where he like wakes up at the gore finds and listens to the song and then the cat does get out or doesn't get out. You're linking Uh that with the closing scene. And I don't think they're linked. It's two separate incidences when he's at the gore finds. Well, right. Yeah. Well, that's, I guess, why to me, it seems like this is not a loop. Well, yeah, it's, has it's, it's not a, no, I don't think it's actually a loop. I think it's a metaphorical right. loop. You know, it's right. it, the idea is that like he's back where he started essentially. Because I think in the beginning it's like a flash forward, <laughs> which then fades to like a week previously him waking up at the Gorefines. Brian is having a stroke. <laughs> Brian, <laughs> go ahead. Well, the the thing is, 
before we see so the the biggest shot that's different is the cat escaping and the cat not escaping which obviously we can get into the metaphorical implications of that but even before that you see him waking up at the gore finds and he does the thing where his head sort of comes horizontally into frame and like mm-hmm. so there are like literally exact shots so right. i i think that I, I it's it's frustrating because it's not this was clearly a flashback and it's not clearly he's stuck like in um our groundhog day podcast i talked about the movie lost highway where Bill Pullman ends the movie like he basically like transfers his existence to like the Bill Pullman we saw at the beginning of the movie. So it's Mm -hmm. like meant to be this like supernatural, like, you know, kind of loop kind of thing. And I think it's not quite that either, but it sort of lives in this halfway territory where it's metaphorically we understand it's a loop. But in the actual text, it's sort of left ambiguous in a way that, you know, is having us argue about what exactly is going on after we've all seen the movie. <laughs> right. And I think that is the point, right? If it's right. this sort of like elegy for Lewin Davis's career, you can kind of think of it as a song, right? Where it's, it kind of circles back and it doesn't really matter. You can play it over and over again. It's the same thing. Right. And so like, it's not exactly the same every single time you play it, but it is the same song. And so you can kind of, which of course is like it how it's intended to be read, I would imagine, by the Cohen brothers, just kind of mm. knowing where they are at. But um yeah, I think it doesn't matter at the end of the day if it's an exact loop or if it's not an exact loop. Lewin Davis ends in the place where he began. Right. And that's the point. So what I'm confused about is I saw it and I was like, oh wait, this is this a loop? That's the very same shot as before. What's and and upon it investigating it, there are shots um that are exactly the same but mm-hmm. we also get to see more but there are shots that are the exact same doesn't really matter like the only thing that's different right. is that he he doesn't let the cat out this time but all the events that we see after the opening still presumably happen like those are all flashbacks that lead him to this day where the only difference that we see is the cat not getting out? Am I mistaken? I think we're still interpreting it differently. So yeah, because you're still reading it literally, Michael, <laughs> right, right, and it's yeah. not meant to be read literal. Well, but but also, I mean, here's how I read it. I I read it as this is one full week in this guy's life. He began mm-hmm. and ended the week crashing at the Gorfine's house, and so we get we start with a flash forward to the end of the week when he gets beat up. We then fade flashback to the like to the beginning of the week the last time he was crashing there and get all the way through to the next time he crashes there yeah uh and and maybe the shots look identical as part of their making you feel like his life is a loop i don't think it's literally like we're in a time right. warp sci-fi I feel like that's, movie. that's yeah. how i read it also yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the, i think the, and i don't disagree and i also agree that it doesn't matter um yeah. because the the message the you know is the same either way but i think what's frustrating is that it's a visual language that is used to tell you when you're seeing something you've seen before um there's a movie that uh, tony scott directed deja vu with denzel washington where the Uh, first time (laughs) the first time you see denzel uh he sort of does this thing he kind of puts his hands over his nose kind of like rubbing his his face a little uh which was okay to do back then um and uh (laughs) and it's just like it's just like an interesting thing that he does gesture and then in the movie spoilers because i don't think anybody cares about this movie but he, he goes back in time and like dies and then you see him again and he does the same thing and that's when you realize like oh it's the him from the beginning is like in because time right. loop whatever you know but it's very clearly a choice to have him do something you're going to remember an hour and a half later because then you go oh 
we've seen this shot before. And I think that's mm -hmm. why it's frustrating that you open it with him sticking his head into the side of frame both times because it's like, okay, if you're really saying like literally every time he wakes up, he does the exact same movement. Like why you don't need to do that. If the idea is that he is, um, that it's just, he's basically doing the same thing a, a week later, then show us slightly different shots of him basically doing the same thing. And then we understand, but they purposefully, there's no, it's not a coincidence. They purposefully show you the exact same shot, which then raises the question, are we actually seeing the exact shot or are we not? I mean, it's kind of doing though, like what No Country does, where it I was messes. About to say right, that. I figured. Yes. Sorry, yeah. it's fucking no, with no, you. No. Yeah, <laughs> on purpose. Uh -huh. Right, it's it's using the medium to create a a, a sense beyond the literal reading. Right, it's it's, it's meta. It's beyond it's beyond the text. It's like it's trying to get you to feel the loop in a in an uncanny way. It's hijacking your knowledge of film language to mess with your expectations of what a movie is and how we experience watching film. And the Coens love to do this. Like, and there's there's nobody better at it in my book that's working today. Like, they're so good at taking the way that we watch film and and drilling into what the medium does and how people experience it. And then using that to tell you stories, but that affect you in weird subconscious ways, because that's how they're trying to affect you. And this is like the fact that we've been talking about this now for, I don't know, three hours is what it feels right. like. Um, <laughs> the listeners are screaming at us going, it's this, you idiot. <laughs> right. What if we're doing this on purpose to affect you listeners, on a subconscious level? Yeah. But yeah, that, that's the thing. So I really enjoy learning random new skills. And even though at the outset, the skills might not seem like they would be useful in filmmaking, invariably, these random skills always seem to pay off in some way. For example, you might not think that learning the coding language of JavaScript would have anything to do with making video essays on film. But After Effects, the software that I use to do all the motion graphics you see in the lessons from the screenplay videos, lets you control your elements with JavaScript. And, me being me, I randomly got into coding with JavaScript a couple years ago for literally no reason at all, but it ended up paying off. Because now, when animating the videos in After Effects, instead of having to manually reposition every line of the screenplay that appears on screen keyframe by keyframe, I can simply write something like var y equals my composition dot height minus open parentheses 480 divided by two close parentheses semicolon. If you have no idea what any of that means, then you need to check out Christian Heilman's class, the JavaScript Toolkit, on Skillshare. Skillshare has thousands of classes on writing, photography, design, and, yes, programming. And if you use our link, Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay, you get two free months of premium membership. So start learning that random skill that you've always been curious about today at Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. You never know how it might one day pay off. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring Beyond the Screenplay. I I do agree, though, Brian, that I, I think it's frustrating here. I mean, it's frustrating in no country also, obviously. But I think it's more frustrating here because it doesn't seem as necessary here mm. if they want. Like, there are other ways you could have done it in a way where I feel like for me anyway, no country is like 
no, we're going to pull the rug out from under you, and that's the only way to make you fall down. Right. It's very clear what is being done in No Country and why it's being done. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think why also it probably doesn't super matter that it's a loop is that for me, like I I was saying before, it does feel like a story of growth and like minute growth where, you know, if when we meet him the second time, right, when we flash back to the beginning of the week, I feel like he is different than when he ends the week, like he makes decisions and he learns things and he's able to play the song at that uh, and that final performance that he played with his partner that he couldn't perform earlier in the film that he had Mm -hmm. like a meltdown for. And so I think that's what I liked about is that it's there's enough of a loop that kind of like you were saying, Alex, he's not he's not fixed. He's not going to be famous now. But like he's taken like a baby step toward a better version of himself. Was how I don't know. I, I think it. he's taken a couple of steps back almost. Mm. I don't think he's better off than when he began because he's given up. He's like given up on a lot of stuff. He had the chance to be in Peter, Paul and Mary and he didn't take it. And because he wasn't willing to compromise. And I think that that's a clear like kind of give up and then he tried to ship out with the merchant marines and he didn't do that either he failed at that and lost all of his money so (laughs) and he hit the cat like he's not better (laughs) i would argue but i think that is kind of the point is that it's this like slow slow letting go of something um which maybe that is like a healthy thing to do is like move on from the death of your you know um singing partner but maybe it's also yeah it's a sad place yeah, I mean, I think ultimately in the movie, I think there is there is room for him to have changed throughout that week. But I think ultimately the loop aspect is hitting home when you're saying, Trisha, yes. is that like he he's essentially his life is in this standstill in between space, never really going anywhere. Exactly. Side note, today I learned that the uh, Peter, Paul and Mary was comprised of three people named uh, Peter, Mary and Noel. <laughs> <laughs> True story. Yep. But do we not think that the, uh, you know, like it sounds like we should get into the cat a little bit because obviously yes. we have this very clear demarcation between the cat getting out and the cat not getting out. And I think that's at least the filmmakers saying that a change has happened um, because so much of his relationship with the cat, uh, I actually read some stuff where it's like Lewin actually comes from the Welsh word for lion. And there's so mm-hmm. many, you know, like mm-hmm. um, when someone misunderstands and they say Lewin, Lewin is the cat or whatever. <laughs> like, it's like mm-hmm. very <laughs> sort of like how he I think the cat is, you know, a uh, parallel for him, but also how he relates to the cat is like there's no coincidence that the moment he decides on the side of the road not to go after the cat is also then is when he decides not to get off uh, the highway to go after um, Mm -hmm. uh, what's her name? Linda former girlfriend or Diana or something. And uh, you know, so I think that I think the film is certainly saying something at the end by saying like this time the cat doesn't get out. I know that in terms of the writing process, the cat was a little bit of a later addition by the Coen brothers where they originally had this vision of, you know, somebody getting the crap kicked out of them in the alleyway. Um, And, and just, thought that that was like a fascinating idea which it's you know very very coen brothersy especially how it's shot where you like can't see the you can't guy see the man. Yeah. and you like mm-hmm. kind of don't know what it's all about at the beginning where you're like I, why is this guy mad and then he, right. it doesn't matter he gets away right is um, it that harris like it's a lot of confusion. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's actually a beautiful mind crossover <laughs> the coen brothers started there according at least according to my reading and then they were kind of 
having trouble finding the way into like, but how does it all fit together? Because it's so episodic. And so it's like, it was nice of them to add in the cat uh, because in a way it's like, we, the viewer, kind of need something, right? If you didn't have the cat in oh, this, yeah. how would you even find your footing in watching this movie? You might get frustrated and walk out of it. But mm. with their cat, you're kind of, it's a, it's sympathetic. But also it, it provides that through line of like, well, what is going to right. happen to the cat? It at least gives you some kind of question that you can th- you know thread or follow from scene to scene. But then I, I do agree with you, Brian, that, that once they had the device of the cat, which is maybe the only sort of narrative device in it. If you want to think about like narrative device, I guess with a capital D um, since they're eschewing a lot of other traditional devices here. But once you have that, I do think that they loaded it with meaning, which is Mm -hmm. really interesting. And, you know, we could probably talk about all day. Well, speaking of the cat, just on the production side, you know, the story about how they actually cast several cats Uh because they literally had to find like cats that just wanted to do different activities of their own accord <laughs> because you can't make cats do anything. So it's like, we need a cat that likes to walk like down hallways. So like <laughs> we're going to use this cat for that. And like the cat that likes to jump on things will like get that cat for that. Like, that's they literally had to cast like seven cats to do the job of one cat because they couldn't make it do anything. This is why you don't see cats in film very often. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, who doesn't do that dogs. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like that's that was the least believable part of of the story to me is when he loses the cat and then finds it later and it's not the cat. I'm like, no, 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 no. There are not two cats that are that chill to just be like picked up and carried around. Like, I'm not buying that that was a different cat that he found. OK, they're New York cats. You know, they're used to it. <laughs> I mean, probably. While we're on cat casting stories, the cat in Gone Girl, I always wondered why that cat was so chill. And I think it was that it's a blind and deaf cat. or maybe it was maybe it's only one of those but it's something where it's just like the cat doesn't know what's going on so it can't do anything oh my god wow Um, yeah working with cats difficult yeah not gonna write a cat into a movie is what i although also my favorite i feel like i love the cat though and like its character no this cat is amazing staring out the subway window is like I want to watch that scene forever. Like, what is it thinking? There's it lots of, of beautiful happened? moments with the cat. I love them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's always hurrying to feed it when he ends up somewhere else. Um, and I think that, again, going back to, like, the metaphor piece, it's obvious the, like, sort of wayward nature of cats is a perfect metaphor for Lewin. Um, this movie reminded me so much of just being in my 20s um, because – all of my friends were musicians at that time. And like so many of them were always like driving around going to crazy gigs. And like, they'd be like, I'd call them and be like, oh, are you going to come over? Or can I see you at the bar? And they're like, no, I'm in Utah. I'm like, why are you there? And they're like, I don't know. I just drove here overnight because I heard there's like a gig at this random thing. <laughs> and it, and they like sleep on couches. And you know, that is what musicians do. And so to have him literally not have a place to stay you know, which I guess was actually kind of borrowed from real life because this is based on the the life of a real musician, Dave Van Bronk. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was kind of living a nomadic existence um, in that part of New York at the time. But it's also a really well-observed thing. And then, of course, like, you wouldn't have a dog. It doesn't work as a metaphor, only a, a kind of, yeah, wandering <laughs> yeah, animal. <laughs> Independent, <laughs> not reliant on others for survival. Exactly. Can like you that. guess... If Michael's a cat person or a dog person. 
<laughs> yeah, well, and it's so I was trying to kind of apply some structural analysis to it while watching, and the movie didn't behave exactly the way I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely drags but, in the middle. Like, I will say that, like, I do get a little tired during the road trip. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I kind of want that part to go faster, personally. I like it, though. Yeah. And yeah, I'm kind of curious to hear your guys' thoughts on this. But I, I feel like for me, I was reading it as like, he's seeing other people that are kind of also wandering in this way. And, you know, what's revealed with John Goodman is like, not happy things. Like, he's not a very happy person. And Garrett Hudlin, I couldn't hear what he was saying, but it Nothing. didn't sound like he was a happy person either. <laughs> um, Or I couldn't understand what he was saying, rather. But I was like... Also, like you were in Tron, and now you're in this, and like I don't know that that poor man. Anyway, I don't really care what he says. He's beautiful to look at. It's fine with me. Oscar Isaac is beautiful to look at. Like I'm just so in love with him in this movie. And then he's just sitting in a studio with Adam Driver and Justin Timberlake. Yeah, and I just yeah, I can't. yeah, it was pretty fun. But it is interesting that it's kind of after that sequence that he decides to leave the cat behind, right? To go to where he's trying. To like, I don't know. I read that as sort of like a sacrificing of a thing mm-hmm. to mm. to continue pursuing this dream to try to talk to this guy to get him to listen to the song, and it goes wrong. And so, like on the way back, as like almost punishment or confirmation that you've made the wrong choice, like he hits the cat mm-hmm. and right doesn't doesn't go to the death Ohio. of the dream. Right. I, I think that the other way that you can read it is he is sort of being punished for not accepting responsibility because he he mm-hmm. doesn't accept responsibility for the cat right. and he doesn't respond accept responsibility for the mother of his child. And then he his you know, his punishment for that, the result of those acts, the consequence of those actions is that then he doesn't he doesn't fulfill his dream. You know, his crisis is what would probably be most movies about this kind of character's midpoint, which is like they get there, they play the song. The guy's like, you're going to be a star. But instead (laughs) that's moved to later in the movie. And it becomes the crisis point where he's like, nah, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. You know, and we, as the audience get to see the song and get to see like how good he is and how lovely that is. And then it's, but that doesn't matter because we are not in charge of whether or not he's successful. Yeah. That was one of the scenes that like sealed the deal for me with this movie is just, Mm. I love how they they have the patience to let you just watch these live performances. And they were live. Uh, mm-hmm. Oscar Isaac mm-hmm. actually was recorded live doing these performances. And you can feel it. And I think in that performance for uh, F. Murray Abram, the, the big wig record guy, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's like he's like making eye contact with him and like really trying to like give it all he's got and really like show who he is like through this song. And then it just cuts to that shot of F. Murray Abram with like kind of the backlight. He's kind of like this mm-hmm. faceless man. And the first thing he says is, I don't see a lot of money here. Right. Period. Mm-hmm. And like after just this like beautiful real time expressive performance, like just the simple flat response. And I think that that is just like how it feels. You know, that's how it feels <laughs> for somebody who is trying to be authentic and kind of stick to their guns about their authenticity and like doing it their own way and then the response just being like so robotic almost and and how crushing that is like Mm -hmm. they got nothing from what i just did yeah i think it's interesting and very important that lewin is actually very talented yes because the coen brothers often have characters in their movies that are just like bad at things Mm -hmm. um 
they're just like, they're bad at being criminals, right? Or they're just like sort of grotesque people in general <laughs> who, who like sort of just like morally rotten or kind of idiotic or just like, you know, whatever it is, that's kind of who populates Coen Brothers movies. Um, and so to have somebody like Lewin, who is a jerk for most of the movie, but he's actually really good. I think that hooks you and keeps you in it because yes. if he were not an exceptional musician and, and, and almost everybody that he encounters is a good music, you know, everybody's pretty good actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he were not so um, charismatic and magnetic and it's, it's exactly what you're saying, Alex, where they don't like cut away in the middle of the song or make it a montage or anything. You just sit there and you watch Oscar Isaac do it. And this is what a tribute to the performance, but yeah. just, they don't have to prove to you that he's good. They don't have to cut to like screaming fans. <laughs> right. 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 Good. And we, that's there. They were so smart to open the movie with that, like that yes. first yes. opening sequence. It's just like an open, you know, that open mic night or whatever. And he's doing that song and it's all close on his face and it's dark everywhere else. We are hooked in from that moment and we want Lewin to succeed because we know he deserves it. But unfortunately for him, the universe doesn't care that he deserves it. Right. Um, which is kind of the point. Yeah. And there's something I think about a lot, which is, how do you make a character who is maybe not a good person sympathetic to the audience? Um, and uh, I, I, because I talked about this a little during Sun- the Sunset Boulevard podcast, but like I love movies about sort of people who don't make the right decisions and then are punished for it. Like I actually um, really enjoy watching that. I don't know if it's Schadenfreude or if it's just like I like the lesson. I, li- I think it's a more powerful mm-hmm. lesson than like he learned his lesson and now everything's fine. But you know, you have like Silence of the Lambs. You You hear about everything Hannibal Lecter has done, you don't actually see him doing those things, which is part of then why like a movie like Hannibal doesn't really work. Cause it's like just showing you things and you're like, Oh, now, now it's just gross. Like it's not mm-hmm. like interesting. Um, and I think with Lewin Davis, it does a similar thing, which is you hear through the movie about how, what a, sorry, an sorry, asshole real quick. Is. Are you comparing Lewin Davis to Hannibal Lecter? Just I'm comparing, I'm comparing <laughs> a storytelling technique between <laughs> the films. I want to see that movie though, where they are a t- team. Up. Right. Okay. Sorry, Brian. Go up. ahead. Make make your point. I just it seems a bit of a leap to me, but okay. I like it. Okay. Now I want to see a shot, reverse shot of of Lewin Davis playing the song to the producer, but then the other end is just Hannibal, like <laughs> yes, talking sir. talking the to the other side of the yeah. bars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just enjoying the music like he does. We know how much he loves music. Yeah. Right. Um, no, but it's a similar technique in that we hear about him being an asshole. You know, it's like, oh, you were such a jerk last night. And like Gene is just like, doesn't even want to look at him and all this kind of stuff. But we don't actually mm-hmm. see that. And then we right. do see it at the end of the movie. Um, and that's sort of where we realize, right, that's that's what this movie is about. That's who this character is. But I think if we saw that throughout the movie, we wouldn't be on board with this guy. Like we we have a guy who we who, you know, he's trying to save the cat. He's trying to like, he's trying to get by. He's not just being a jerk to everybody all day. Um, and, and I think that that is one of the ways that you can have a character who you maybe don't agree with their morals uh, or their actions, but you can still make an audience care about them and, and be on their side. Yeah. And I feel like by the time he does do things that are just like blatantly awful, like when he's mocking the lady trying to play her little harpsichord so thing sad. yeah right like 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 that's unforgivable that's bad but you've seen just how much the world has beaten him down the entire week leading up to that mm-hmm. moment then capped off with like the bar owner saying he slept with gene like it's just it's like a breaking point for him and so, so you right. understand why he's a jerk because life has been 
not kind to him. And and yeah. he's making decisions that are like not really well thought out, but like you get why he's making them and they just keep failing over and over again. And and I also like I really like how there's so many points in the film where he kind of has these opportunities to go down a different path. Uh, like when he is driving down the highway and could turn mm. to go visit his baby mama, because that also feels really authentic to life as well. Like you, you have that sense sometimes where it's like I could stay passive and stay on this path that I'm on or I could make a divergence here and go on a different path. And it his choice is always to kind of stay on the, the grooves that he's already on. Like he doesn't ever veer off of that road. Anyway, I don't know what the point of that all was, but <laughs> I, I I find that uh, it's very relatable. I, there's something about this movie that feels like periods of life where you feel like you're in that loop, where you feel like, mm. like maybe if I made this choice, I would have gone this way or this way, but I kind of didn't. And so I'm, now I'm just still here coasting along. And what is my life? What am I doing? Well, and all of this actually reminds me of our conversation about Sunset Boulevard because Brian, you're not quite right when you say he isn't a jerk the whole time, because there's a moment and it's the midpoint, Michael, when he actually is a colossal jerk. It's that dinner at the Gorefines when they mm-hmm. ask him to sing and perform. I said he's that- not a jerk the whole time. Okay. <laughs> Meaning it's just, it's not just like scenes of him just being a right. jerk to people. Right, That's right, what I meant. Right, right. Yeah. 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 You're right. If, if it was every scene, it would be awful and no one would want to watch it but right. that scene at the gore finds mm-hmm. where they're so nice you yeah. finally get to meet them they're just the loveliest people like they're not even mad that he let their cat out or anything right. and mm-hmm. like they're just really sweet and lovely and just like oh please we insist that you stay he's such a talented musician like and it really is the midpoint where we he has this decision of like am i gonna be nice and like perhaps take in this kindness like take this opportunity and he just goes completely the other direction. And I really think that's the moment, that fork in the road, where he starts to slide down into the second half of the movie. And we see it just going worse and worse and worse. Like, you just alienated the only people who really were nice to you. Right. Um, and have been consistently generous with you and supportive of your career. And no one else is interested in that, like in helping you. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that's where it starts to make that turn where it's just like, it's not going to work out for you, man. Well, I think it's important that what happens at midpoint at their house is she triggers him regarding his friend, right. you know, yeah, like right. regarding his friend who died. And I think that's the truth emerges. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's the, it's yeah. the ghost. It's the ghost thing. You know, he's, he's living mm-hmm. with a really uh, traumatic ghost in this movie. And, and I think it's interesting because they don't really talk about why his friend committed suicide um, or, mm-hmm. you know, does Lewin blame himself? Like there's, there's so much that could be attached to that event that we don't ever get to know. But obviously yeah. it's haunting him. Right. This movie does a nice control of information in the, the same way I was just talking about with like seeing him starting to see him, his behavior get worse. We also have like beginning the movie, he says, you know, they say like, oh, you used to sing that song with Mike. And then he holds up the record. And I think Gene says, I miss Mike. And there's just these like little hints of who this mm-hmm. character is and what he means and what happened to him. It's not even clear. Like, are the Gorefines Mike's parents? Like, maybe it's never stated one way or the other. So it's just sort of it just leaves those questions just ambiguous enough that you're that you're still hooked and and kind of uh intrigued by the mystery is not the right word but you know the the sort of questions that the movie kind of leaves unanswered yeah the exposition is very like smooth and organic which is always really nice another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Something I wanted to mention because I know, uh, Brian, you've wanted to talk about clones. And did we get into clones in our Sunset Boulevard podcast? Yeah, we did. Anyway, we're bringing back clones again. I Watching it this time, I had clones on the mind. Attack of the clones. Attack of the clones, yeah. Uh, I had clones on the brain. And and so I was looking for that. And I, and I was realizing how many characters in this movie do kind of function as, quote unquote, clones for Lewin Davis. As far mm. as what he could become, who he could be right now, like who, doesn't, who he doesn't want to be. Yeah. Um, mm. You know, you have his father who... In, yep. in Lewin's words, just existed, you know, just working on a right, ship, right. just just existing. That's like his worst nightmare in some ways. You know, he wants to be an artist, be creative, express himself. You have Jim and Gene who are like want to have a baby and like are, are mm-hmm. you know they're doing more popular music, you know, to actually make money. Mm-hmm. You've got like even John Goodman's character who's kind of like the aging musician who's hooked on drugs, who's just kind of like you know barely holding it together. And I love the mi- the moment where he's sleeping on Al Cody's couch and he goes to shove his box of records under the coffee mm. table yes. and he pulls it out and there's a box of records already under there. <laughs> it's like the perfect moment of this is your future, man. Like your right. box of records is just under the coffee table. There's so many in the same position as him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And when Johnny Five does speak such that you can hear him, it's basically <laughs> to talk about how he was an actor and is not anymore. Like how he he his dream failed and now he's i mean it's kind of like max and sunset boulevard like i you i had a future and then now i'm just you know this crazy person's sidekick (laughs) right i think there is and this is not a surprise considering that there's meaning attached to everything in a coen brothers movie but i think it is interesting with everybody's names in this movie because everybody like all the other musicians that he meets kind of have like stage names or they're like trying to be other people kind of Mm. and he is just kind of trying to be Lewin Davis. Right. Um, and then, of course, I mean, obviously, again, it's borrowed from real life, the title of the movie and the title of his album, Inside Lewin Davis, which is named after Dave Van Ronk's Inside Dave Van Ronk album. It also is calling attention to the fact that he's not willing to compromise who he is, right? He yeah. could join this trio and become sort of like anonymous again in the way that the cat is anonymous to him throughout most of the movie, right? The cat doesn't have a name either. Right. Um, and so, but he's just kind of trying to like be himself and be Lewin Davis and his unwillingness to let go of that is what ends up like dooming him to anonymity and obscurity Mm -hmm. ultimately beautiful kind of yeah he's also trying while he's not willing to compromise he's also not like really i I feel like you could argue sharing what is inside lewin davis because Mm. he's Mm. not he's playing these other songs he's trying to be this new version of himself and like he doesn't want to let that other painful thing that's what triggers his his craziness in the midpoint is like she starts singing the parts that his partner would sing. And so right. it's like there is still a little bit of a performance happening and trying to craft who he, he this new version of him is. Um, and the cat is ultimately named Ulysses. Right. So on the nose, Cohen brothers. Like <laughs> That was a moment where I was like, all right. If we want to tie this movie to uh, uh, Our Brother Art, though, then that's a 
That's a quick way <laughs> well, in. I was reading on the Wikipedia. Um, the Coen brothers said they viewed the music and this movie as like a direct descendant of Oh Brother Where Art Thou. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. Which is the Odyssey, which uh, yeah. I know. It's right. so, we get it. We get it. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone seen the movie Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges and Colin Farrell? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's almost a similar take on this where it's like if if Lewin Davis was, you know, 30 years later, it's basically Uh Jeff Bridges is like an aging kind of has been country, more like classic country Western star. And then Colin Farrell's like the new sexy sort of pop country star. But like they both sing in it and the music's really good. Um, Written by um, Ryan Callum. Is that his name? I forget the name. But. Uh, but yeah, it's sort of a, a very similar take on the theme and just a really cool movie that I think kind of went under the radar. In a much more commercial version of this movie, to be clear. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Not this little sensitive thing about how the futility of everything. Right. A friend of mine actually sent me an article by this like political philosopher. Basically, it was an article that really in-depth analysis of like the creative class mm. and the the role it plays in society and how he called it like today. It's like, hackers hipsters and hippies is like the it, he defines what he means by those but it's like uh-huh. hackers you know the silicon valley people who are like designing the future hipsters are more like the culture makers like like when your neighborhood gentrifies and like a restaurant right. opens like that's the that's where the culture is going and hippies are like he's defining it as like the you know, the mindfulness movement and like people mm. who are trying to optimize your brain for productivity and like basically these are these are the people that are like kind of going to create our future right now but also they're the most prone to what he called the precariat like it's not the proletariat but the precariat where it's like it's all startups it's all uh artists it's all things where like you're always in the state of uh, precariousness like mm-hmm. you may mm-hmm. devote 10 years to your app and change the world or you may do nothing with it and it was all for nothing or like you may try to build a film career or a music career or whatever and try to change the world through your art and nobody cares and nothing happens. You know, it's, it's like this particular part of the economy, this, this creative class that, you know, they feel that their role in society is important and is actually like defining our future. And yet it's the most precarious class. You know, you can either be mm-hmm. making it or completely not at all. And I think this movie captures that through history. You know, it's been happening like this through history. Mm. I mean, this is why though, I mean, just, particular this this came out in 2013 mm. and it really reminds me of of being in my 20s um and of course we're all most of us except for brian no, he is but like, <laughs> sorry speak up please <laughs> we're all millennials he's an elder millennial he is an elder millennial yeah. but like we all you know came through the financial crisis and in our 20s had like no jobs, no stability. It's exactly what you're talking about, Alex. So like we're talking about sleeping on friends' couches, not being able to afford rent, chasing down gigs because we just have to chase down gigs. And yet we're, you know, also the same generation. It's famously, we've been famously shamed for it, for having grown up with our parents telling us that we could do anything we wanted only to have that dramatically not be true. And so what else do we know to do but to kind of Lewin Davis it as best as we can (laughs) and try to, you know, the way that all of the people in this movie are, they're kind of all the same age. They're all like passionate about um, their, their singing and their music and they're living in the same neighborhoods in crappy apartments, like kind of, 
you know, there's the implication that there's like a lot of overlap in social groups. It's like, oh, who are you crashing with? I'm with Al Cody. Like, oh, you know him. He knows that guy. That's exactly how it was in my 20s here in Los Angeles because we were in the exact same situation that these people were in, you know, wherever they wherever they were in New York in this time. So it's like exactly michael is freaking out go just, michael you, the space is triggered for me just all those shots of those yes. impossibly narrow hallways yes. i love those mm-hmm. right, right. Like the claustrophobia of it but it mm-hmm. feeling yeah. so real at the same time yeah, yeah. The cinematography in this movie is beautiful just, and like the yes. lighting and the costuming and like yeah there's, also, there's like a soft focus on everything it's yeah, yeah. it's really beautiful i love the light the way the light looks it's the cinematographer is um bruno dalbonel who did amelie and he also mm-hmm. did my favorite Harry Potter movie, right? The Half Blood exactly. Prince. Exactly. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I wonder, and this is going to kind of detour into a criticism that I think we'll end up with a celebration of an aspect of it. But I wonder, <laughs> a journey. <laughs> Thank you for the preview of this. I am the Ulysses of this next ramble. Um, <laughs> but I wonder if I had seen it earlier, like if I had seen it mm. in my twenties, if I would have connected with it kind of more in the way that you were talking about alex or with the spirit of of kind of all of this because i think you're too successful now is what you're saying (laughs) that's exact (laughs) i am the one percent uh i'm very much not so so earlier we were talking about like we we don't see like cuts to the audience like reacting and celebrating and being like, Oh my God, you're amazing. Like we do see them applaud and stuff, but I feel like I was kind of missing that as someone that's not mm. super into folk music. I was listening to it and I was like, I think he's good. Like he's good. Right. This is good music, I think, but was kind of looking for more of the movie to like validate that. Mm. So I feel like I didn't have as much of that buy-in of, Oh, this is someone that's amazing and should definitely be a star, but isn't. So I was kind of missing on that. And I think because of the sort of age difference and being out of my 20s now, seeing him kind of make those, but I'm an artist and I'm going to suffer for my art and like, I'm going to reject the logical, reasonable, reasonable choices. It was hard for me to like get on board with him in that way also. Mm. But I was still ultimately engaged and brought in because, as you mentioned earlier, Alex, uh, of Oscar Isaac's performance. I feel like he is just, there is like a, a gentleness to his soul where yeah. I just want him yeah. to be okay. And I know there is an okay him in there. And I'm just like, I just want, I want you to find that. I feel like his performance is so honest. Like I, I, I feel like he didn't hold anything back. Oscar Isaac. I, there's something mm. about his performance in this movie where I'm just, that's why I'm in love with him in this movie. Cause it, it, there's so much earnestness on the surface. And he had done things before this, but this was the career-making thing yes, for him. Yes, this is a big break. Yeah, and it, makes yeah sense. it was. I mean, I know him from the Nativity story, which in which wow. he plays <laughs> Joseph. <laughs> I, mean, I, knew, I knew him from Drive. I, I strongly do not recommend watching that movie. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, is is his performance. I'd seen him in a couple things before, because he was in um, the Robin Hood, like um, Ridley Scott one, and he was in body of lies but it's like he played a smaller role i don't even remember him right. but drive i just remember when i saw the movie i was like who is this guy and he has this like fraught relationship with carrie mulligan which is you know, <laughs> the two of them just can't get along <laughs> i love her in this i mean i love her yeah. always yes. but mm-hmm. he's so understated that you have to have her be kind of just like really big and vitriolic and 
just constantly telling him what a jerk he is all the time and just how much she regrets sleeping with him. And like, which you kind of sense that that's, you know, obviously not all the way true that they have some kind of like real friendship underneath all of this, because obviously he is kind of actually friends with them and, and with Jim and like all of that has to be communicated even while she's like spouting hatred at him. And it, it works. It's really well it's, done. It's amazing how it works because really she's so nasty to him at some points, but there's something right. there. Yeah, it's it's really mm-hmm. interesting. Right. It's like you guys clearly care deeply about each other, but I also get that you completely hate him in this moment. Right. Both right. of those trains are going at the same time somehow. Yeah. Yeah, it's because she's so good. I mean, they, they both are just so good. And those scenes are really well written. I love the scene in the cafe where they're really yes. starting mm-hmm. to like get mm-hmm. into it about stuff. It's just, yeah. And then he jumps up because he sees the cat go by. Um, it's great. Hey, listeners, Brian here. Did you know that one of the things you can do on the internet is tell everyone your opinion? (laughs) Just tell people what you think about them. You don't even have to ask you to. Guess what? We're actually asking you to. If you head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review, you can let us know exactly what you think about us. (laughs) Do it. Or don't. I mean, (laughs) I'm a little scared about it. I'm just thinking about Inside Out when they get the facts and opinions wrong. (laughs) These facts and opinions all look the same. Only positive opinions, please. Only say nice things if you have nice things to say. That reminds me, Trisha. (laughs) (laughs) It's the delayed reaction joke. I love it. And I'll say one more thing, Michael, uh, before we wrap up, just as far as like that opening scene uh, and, you know, why it hooked me Mm -hmm. is because, you know, even if you're not like into folk music or know like, oh, is he like technically doing folk music the best? I think it was because of his performance and because it was like you could tell that he was putting real emotion and real energy into this performance of the song like in such a raw way with the camera right up in his face that I was like, mm-hmm. he's good for that reason. Like, mm-hmm. you know, he's one of those musicians that I would want to watch live in a small cafe because there's something real happening on stage and not just like a technical performance, but like, I want to watch this human do this. Mm-hmm. Right. He's yeah. leaving his soul out on like on the stage. Right. Um, and that's what it is to really perform right in, in this way of like, that's why I want to see Kanye West live. <laughs> 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 Eric, Eric, cut it, cut it. <laughs> Why don't we go around and say uh, what lessons we're going to take from inside Lewin Davis. Brian, do you want to start us off? There's a few things going on here, which is that I, Coen Brothers movies are always like dripping with metaphor. Um, and I think that that's awesome. And I love that. Um, but there's something that for me, I feel like a movie or a TV show, it always needs to be entertaining and what i refer to as entertaining i don't just mean like fun and light i mean like just you're engaged with the material that could mean you're laughing you're scared you're intellectually engaged you're just experiencing a mood or you're just invested in the plot and the characters because you care about them i recently watched hail caesar which i had waited years to watch because i was afraid i was going to hate it and i I pretty much hated it um and (laughs) a big part of it was just it felt like 40% of the movie was just these like, we have a silly idea that has nothing to do with anything. And it's just going to be this side thing. And the other half of the movie was like metaphor, communism, religion. Like we are talking about these things, like not subtextually, just like literally these are what the characters are talking about. And it just felt, it felt so all over the place. And I was just like, I understand there's a lot of metaphor here to dissect, but I don't 
care because I don't want to watch this movie again. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to engage with with what's going on here. And I think uh, with Lewin Davis, uh, I enjoy each piece of the movie. And I think structurally, Lewin Davis doesn't even have like a an overarching character objective until late in the movie like at the first at the beginning it's like oh he needs to get the cat and now he needs money and now he needs a ride and it's not even until the second half where you're like oh no he's going he needs to go play for this guy because he wants to be a star and he failed at that and then now he's coming back to where he is and there's like a thematic objective but you don't have if it's not like the whole movie he's like one day i'm gonna get to chicago and i'm gonna it's not that kind (laughs) of movie Mm -hmm. but I don't mind because I understand I'm, I'm like enjoying watching each individual scene and I'm and I'm along for literally the ride. Like in a, a similar movie I think about is Shawshank Redemption, where like the first half of the movie, there's no talk of escape. There's no talk of him clearing his name. It's just a bunch of stuff happening. You don't even know like what the movie is going to be about, but you don't care because each individual sort of um vignette is is great and i feel like that's what the coen brothers are really frustrating for me when they do wrong and are really satisfying when they do right and i think lewin davis is 90 percent right for me in the sense of just like i don't know how this scene ties to the rest of the movie or if it does but like i'm having a good time watching it and if i'm having a good time watching it i'll watch it again and then i'll engage with your metaphor and your thematic such and such but if i'm not then i I just don't care. And I'm you're right. just going to make me angry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's why I like, I love the Coen brothers. And I'm always curious about what they're going to do next, but I sort of have been really frustrated with the last several movies, mm-hmm. but now Joel Cohen is uh, doing Macbeth with Denzel as Macbeth, Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth, Brendan Gleeson as Duncan. So like I'm, yeah. I'm on board for that. Sure. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yep. That'll probably be fine. <laughs> <laughs> this what reminds me, Brian, of one of the things that I was going to say about this or that I love most about this movie, which is it is a. To me, perfect example of what an episodic structure should look like, because mm. and of course, it's borrowed straight out of classical myth, right? Like you right. have the Odyssey, which is episodic, and then you have the genius of Ulysses by James Joyce, which is an interpretation of the Odyssey. Mm-hmm in which Odysseus from the Odyssey is turned into Ulysses, uh, who is this everyman who is just like, it's again, this a very similar exercise in futility. And it's the obvious reference here, but that novel is like, you know, the greatest novel maybe ever. Um, But it's this episodic story. And it reminded me um, as I was watching this. And so the fact that the Coen brothers are hearkening to both Joyce's novel and the original, you know, episodic um, myth here, they're giving a form to what otherwise would seem formless for a thematic reason, because their point is sort of about futility and it's sort of about like, um, yeah, cycles and being stuck in kind of like places and things like this. I was trying to remind myself as I was watching this, because it's been a really long time since I've read Ulysses. Hmm. Um, But there's this amazing quote by T.S. Eliot about Ulysses that to me is like perfectly encapsulates the Coen brothers. I wrote it down. It is um, a way of controlling, of ordering, of giving a shape and a significance to the immense panorama of futility and anarchy, which is contemporary history. (laughs) (laughs) And if you had to sum up the Coen brothers, probably in one sentence, it's probably that sentence. That's great. That's great. I like it. I love the episodic structure here. It's awesome. Alex? Mine's, I don't know if this is really applicable to other movies, but 
uh, I guess it is. I mean, basically just if you're going to do a character study, cast the right actor. Cast Oscar yeah. Isaac. Yeah, cast yeah, right. Oscar Isaac. You know? But, but I th- really think, I mean, this movie, who knows if, it w- if I would have loved this movie if it was somebody else in that role. I don't know. I, I really, like so much of this film for me hinges on his performance and me wanting to watch him do things. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And if I didn't want to watch him chase after a cat and do everything in this movie, then I may have I may have gotten kind of bored and tuned out and like, eh, I'm not really on for this ride. But I actually just want to watch him do everything because he's an interesting character because I like him, but I also know he's going to do stupid things and it's going to frustrate me. And it just is a perfect blend of qualities in his performance that keeps me captivated and makes me want to see what he's going to do in any given situation. So yeah, props to Oscar Isaac. If you wanted to do a breakout role, you sure did it. <laughs> like, <laughs> nicely done. Yeah. Sort of my classic lesson of take a beautiful and interesting person, put the camera six inches from their face, and we're basically here for it. <laughs> Very good point. Yeah. By, by the end of this movie, I was definitely like, okay, I get it. Like, I, th- I get the Oscar Isaac thing right. like, on, on that level. It's real. It's yeah. real. Yeah. It's real. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my lesson is kind of just uh, just about the cinematography, which we you brought up just a little bit ago, Alex. Where it's it's just beautiful, uh, mm. and I just really like the style and the approach. I, I've kind of said before, I I like when a movie can somehow walk the line of there is great control and intention behind every shot, but it also is done in a way where each shot still feels alive. Yes, and I feel like that very much is happening in this movie where it feels super intentional and completely effortless at the same time. And like, I, I think about there's a scene where Oscar Isaac and Garrett Hedlund and John Goodman are kind of on the road and they're in this cafeteria mm-hmm. above the freeway. And there are just these two shots that are at a high angle where you see them on one side of the frame, but you see outside the window mm-hmm. and the window has like rain on it. And so it's blurry and like the car lights are just streaming by in the background. So good. And I was just like, this is, so beautiful like it's just so beautiful and it fits what's happening like this is like cinema at its peak like one of these those moments um so i just i love that and the color correction of it is a thing that's a pretty well-known kind of you know technique now with this sort of like orange and teal color correction where they're like there is no green in this world, just for right. whatever reason, like green just <laughs> becomes blue. And I first encountered that in The Aviator, um, mm. where Martin Scorsese, for a lot of the older periods, he did a very aggressive that. Like I have this image of like Catherine Hepburn uh, walking while playing grass and the grass is just blue. By playing um, golf. Right. When, yeah, golf on the grass. Golf. Yeah. Um, and I, I like that as a a way of signaling this movie is taking place in the past. Like there's something that feels old timey about it without mm-hmm. just like tinting it yellow, right? Or right. like whatever the stereotypical right. thing is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just visually it's it's very beautiful. And as you mentioned, Alex, it's the same cinematographer as Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which transitions into what my what I've been watching. Oh! So I'm gonna go first. Oh! Segway town. So roll right into that. Now that I've finished Harry Potter the books, we watched the final two films in one night, seven part one and part two. And it was just really interesting to see it now from the perspective of a, a book reader. And there's too much to talk about. Like I want us to do a whole episode or series of episodes, maybe even about like 
the books versus the movies and how do you mm-hmm. adapt something and what do you keep and what do you leave behind because it's let's just, do it it's just <laughs> there's so much richness to investigate and there are things that i loved about how they did it in the movies and then things where i was like actually no i understand why people were bothered by that a little bit here anyway so there's it's just really fascinating to see the things that the film medium can and can't do laid bare like that right mm, totally Alex, reverse order. What have you been watching? I've been watching Mrs. America on Hulu. Oh, cool. Um, starring Kate Blanchett. Basically, it's it's about the story of the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, and how it didn't pass. But Kate Blanchett plays this woman who is, you know, a crusader against the Equal Rights Amendment. Mm-hmm. Fascinating character study uh, of her. And then also you get to see both sides. You get to see the Gloria Steinem side of the mm-hmm. movement and uh shirley chisholm running for president uh the nice. first woman to run for president uh yeah, yeah and it's just a really amazing moment in history to get to see in a drama uh so yeah it's a it's a it's a fun show great performances um and i'm just really interested in it, in it for the politics and just wow lots of things cycling in history you know like mm-hmm. there's they a really whole do, there's they? a whole democratic convention where like there's like the progressives and uh, they're trying to have floor votes and being shut down and it's just Wow, like we've been doing a lot of these things for a while, uh, and it's fascinating to watch. Yeah. I'm on board for Kate Blanchett pretty much always. Yep. I mean, yes. yeah, who doesn't want to watch her play a crazy conservative lady? It's great. Literally <laughs> anything. Yeah. We'll watch her play anything. <laughs> Trisha, what have you been watching? So the truth of what I've been watching is an HGTV show called okay. Hometown. Okay. Um, and it is kind of perfect for right now, for whatever reason, I just find it really comforting. It's just like a home renovation show. You know, there are probably 12 of them on HGTV, uh, but I really like this one. It has these, it's a couple that hosts it. Um, Their names are Aaron and Ben Napier, and they live in this little town in Mississippi, and they help new people who are moving into their town. That's like their town's kind of being revitalized. They help people who are moving to town like fix up historic homes essentially, but they're much more in like restoration rather than like renovation. So Mm. it's like, what was, who originally lived in this house? Like when was it built? Who lived here? And they kind of get into the history of the houses and they're just really great hosts. I feel like what you want for like a, one of those sort of reality ish, you know, shows like this Mm -hmm. is people who have real relationships and, you know, it's obviously going to be manufactured to an extent, But for whatever reason, you know, they're this uh, lovely married couple and they have like their childhood friends are like helping them renovate the house. And it it does have like a really small town feeling to it. It's just a great comforting show. And they're really either they're just great actors or they're just like they're just a lovely people. Like they're they're so good at doing that authentic thing where the jokes don't feel written. And maybe they Mm. are written, but they don't feel written and stuff like that. So it's. I don't know. I've just really been enjoying watching it. You can watch it on the HGTV app, which you can get. But I think a lot of it's also on, um, I want to say, Hulu as well. So you can check it out on there. Hometown. Nice. Nice. Now I'm just wondering, like, what would, like, real world beyond the screenplay be like? Like, we were all locked. (laughs) Boring. No, no. What a bad idea. (laughs) Right? It'd either be amazing reality TV or the worst. (laughs) Oh my god! Just film a day of the Slack workspace, and it's a nightmare. <laughs> act, act, act it out with actors. Yeah. Oh god! 
Yeah, that'd be great. I want to see Kate Blanchett do that. Yeah. Brian, what have you been watching? More often than not, when my girlfriend and I watch a movie, it's something neither of us has seen or something that I've seen that she hasn't. And for the longest time we've been talking about, she's like, wait, you haven't seen that? You haven't seen that? So we decided to take a day and she introduced me to some of the movies that I missed from my high school years. Oh, good. So in order, we watched Galaxy Quest. Nice. <gasps> Clueless. A classic. Yes. Drop Dead Gorgeous. Nice. And Can't Hardly Wait. Nice. Wow. Uh, all of which are just a lot of fun. I'd seen like parts of some of them or like, you know, a lot of them, like, of course, I knew half the movie just from like culture and stuff, but I had not actually mm-hmm. like sat down and watched the beginning to end. Recommend all of them, just all good times. But Drop Dead Gorgeous, I really had no idea what it was. I, I thought it was more of a clueless type movie, but it's this like lowbrow mockumentary about a small town beauty pageant in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. It's super un PC, by the way. So like, <laughs> avoid if that's something that you're worried about. Um, but it's Kirsten Dunst, Amy Adams, Ellen Barkin, Allison Janney, Denise Richards, Kirstie Alley, Mindy Sterling, and Brittany Murphy, and wow. other people too. But yes, everybody in it is incredible and hilarious, and uh, it's just it's a really fun time. I can't believe you haven't seen Galaxy Quest. I know. Oh, man. That's so good. Should we talk about it? Somebody write that down. Yeah. Maybe maybe a Patreon. We'll let the the patrons vote on it. (laughs) Right. Right. Awesome. Well, yes, this has been our conversation about Inside Lewin Davis. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, patrons, for supporting the show and making this all possible. As we said at the beginning, you can now vote on our patron-exclusive episode for May. So head to the Patreon to submit your vote. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye. Outer space.